In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. Meditations and Molotov. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time on the Progressive Radio Network or PRN.FM. Well, it is good to be back doing a live show. I apologize to the listeners and everyone out there in radio land and internet land, but things have been extremely busy. We've been on the ground doing a ton of work here in Northwest Indiana and in the broader Chicagoland, Great Lakes, Midwest region. And so we just haven't had the kind of time, or I haven't had the kind of time, to properly conduct and compose the sort of live material that I would like to be the standard for this program. Hence, we've been playing recordings of lectures and uh, other material that I find also and equally extremely useful. And so, I guess part of the draw for some people to have a radio program is to simply hear their voice or to have a platform where they can spout their material or their ideas. I've always seen uh, the fact that I've had a radio program as an ability to highlight the work of other people, to interview people I'm interested in or whose work I'm interested in, and to allow people or to expose people to the sort of material or thinkers or ideas that have had a profound impact on me uh, as an individual and a human being living in this world and trying to understand better what's happening and how to operate within that context. And so part of what I wanted to discuss today, and I'm going to read from some materials that I have here, is organizational structure. There are people out there who will join organizations for any number of reasons. Maybe there's no other options. But a lot of people will join organizations that already exist. Okay, It's a lot easier, of course, to join an organization that already exists. That could be anything from an existing neighborhood organization to an existing union to an NGO that operates, say, where you live. Or maybe a national or international NGO that you, whose work you really like and you're willing to donate to them or maybe go to their fundraising events or so on, that's a certain form of organizing. And I would use Jane McLevy's framework here and I would call that advocacy. And that's, we're going to get into that maybe in, later on in today's program, but definitely in future programs and most definitely when I have Jane on the program when she has some time on a Monday to discuss her book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. You know, her fundamental point is well taken, for me at least. And that is that our organizing strategies and methods and techniques, tactics and so forth, 
should be commensurate with what we hope to achieve. So let's use real world examples. If you simply hope to stop Donald Trump's EPA budget, or if you simply hope to help the existing EPA function a little better or force them to make better regulatory decisions, then an advocacy model would probably work. A small group of committed citizens and likely bolstered by uh, local lawyers would pressure that group or work with other advocacy groups. Primarily, these battles are fought in the courtroom. And that small group of individuals, mostly professionals and mostly people who have a wealth of knowledge and experience in those fields, will work on the issue and try and make those minor reforms. Okay, so that's one model. That model doesn't include uh, too much mobilizing, which would be the next model, and it definitely doesn't include any organizing, which is the model that we want to use and the model that we're attempting to use as we do the work that we're doing here in Northwest Indiana and specifically Michigan City. The mobilizing model has been used in many ways. And the most best real world example that I can use from my personal experience here in Northwest Indiana would be when the private prison corporation, Geo Prisons, wanted to build an immigrant detention facility in Gary, Indiana. An ad hoc coalition of groups from throughout the region and indeed really throughout the Great Lakes came together and opposed the project. That included writing letters to the editor, that included showing up to city council meetings, that included disrupting city council meetings, that included protests and rallies and petitions and all the rest. But there wasn't a base to work from. When I say a base, I mean a base of people who are committed and accountable to a movement or an organization. People mobilized, again, people who are already committed. So one of the things that have been that I think has been proven on the left is that we can indeed mobilize people. Progressive political movements can get people who already agree with them to mobilize and show up to, say, an event in Gary trying to stop an immigrant detention facility. Or we can mobilize nationally or regionally to get people out to New York for an Occupy event or to get people to M Madison, Wisconsin. Um, for an occupation of a of a state capitol building during a right to work union uh, busting campaign. Uh, we can do those things. Sometimes those mobilizations are more effective than others. For instance, here locally, we were able to stop geo prisons from putting that prison in Gary. At the same time, we wouldn't view a prison being put somewhere else as a victory just because it wasn't put in Gary, Indiana. And so once again, you can kind of mobilize people if they propose to put it, say, somewhere 120 miles from Gary, Indiana. We can get enough people to mobilize uh, to stop that project again. But if we were organizing, if we were pulling people into our mix and pulling people and building our base, so building the base of support that we can rely on for those mobilizations, and for that advocacy, but even beyond that, to build real power at the local level and then also drawing that out to the regional, national, and international level. That takes really deep commitment to organizing and a deep commitment to bringing people 
along who aren't right now on the same page with us. Now, when people hear that, I think probably what some people hear is that we should be reaching out to Trump supporters. That's not what I'm saying. I think that there's a portion of Trump supporters who can be organized. How that happens and what that looks like, I think, is anyone's guess, because no one's really doing it right now, at least not in a systematic fashion. Um, Study after study shows that Trump supporters are actually much more wealthy than many of the other Republicans uh, who were supported during the primaries, much more wealthy than Hillary Clinton supporters and uh, quite a bit more wealthy than Bernie Sanders supporters. Exit polls and other studies have shown that the majority of Trump supporters actually did vote based on identity and race much more than they voted on uh, so-called populist reforms or populist issues. So the question becomes, how do we find not the people who are diehard Trump supporters, and maybe not even our first focus is Trump supporters, but how do we find the people who are on the fence? How do we find the people who are indifferent? <coughs> Excuse me. I had a cough that I cannot get rid of. How do we find the people? In my opinion, would be the first step is to find the progressive individuals and organizations that exist but who aren't organizing. So I always use this as a real world example, but back in 2016, there were dozens of people at house parties across places like LaPorte, Indiana, Valparaiso, Indiana, Chesterton, Indiana, Michigan City, Indiana, Portage, Indiana, you know, 50, 60 people packed into houses for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Those people didn't all of the sudden become apathetic, nor did those people all of the sudden become right wing maniacs. Uh, These are people who were mobilized around a presidential election, and which is also one of the limitations of presidential elections. They have the ability to draw large swaths of the population in because it's one of the few times during our existence in this country where people are actually paying attention to politics. So it it is a decent time to organize and mobilize people. But if that organization and that mobilization takes place solely through the scope of whatever campaign those people are engaged in, uh, it it is very limited and it doesn't have the ability to build the kind of base and the kind of power we are going to need to conduct long-term and sustained electoral challenges to those who are in power. And that's just from the electoral angle. That's not to mention that we want to build the sort of grassroots neighborhood by neighborhood, precinct by precinct, ward by ward kind of political power uh, that communities and people would have at the hyper local level that would then filter out through the city and the county and the region and the state and the country. Building that kind of power is going to take a certain level of commitment and also an ability to look back on the kinds of things that we've been doing And to realize that much of what the left considers organizing is actually not organizing at all. It's a lot of mobilizing and even more so a lot of advocacy. And there's times for all of these. That's just to be clear as well. And McLevy is also very clear in her book. There is a time for advocacy. There is a time for mobilizing. In fact, I enjoy a good mobilization, as also Jane mentions in her book. I loved going to Gary, Indiana and connecting with activists throughout the region and the state throughout several states. 
I enjoyed going there and making noise and yelling and chanting and singing songs and disrupting city council events. That is good stuff and it's empowering and it's important. But we have relied too much on advocacy and mobilizing. And in that way, I completely agree with McLevy as well. It's not a matter of either or, it's a matter of and, when, and if. So instead of spending all of our time and energy trying to get Democrats elected, instead of spending all of our time and energy trying to fight these battles in courtrooms with lawyers and professionals and all the rest, the argument is that maybe we wouldn't be in those positions if indeed we spent more time organizing community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city, region by region, county by county, so that people had the kind of power in their day-to-day lives that would then dictate the kind of political decisions their leaders are making. That's in the short term. Of course, in the long term, the hope is to create radically new political institutions uh, where people aren't just simply up for election every two or four years and lobbying and unlimited money being poured in and all the rest. So those reforms need to take place as well until those reforms can take place or until we can get enough people in power, both in the inside and the outside of the system to actually codify those kinds of reforms that would make uh, our job a lot easier uh, and wouldn't put us in a position of constantly responding to reactionary legislation that's going to take a long time to do those things. But we have to start, I believe, with a conversation about what's working and what's not working. And so I had a conversation last evening with a gentleman who organizes with the uh, Northwest Indiana Green Party and the Green Party in the state of Indiana. I, I was a good conversation, but I had to be very honest with him. You know, his approach is that we should simply put people on the ticket under the Green Party banner, let them run, let them garner three, four, five, seven, ten, maybe even 10 percent <clears throat> of the vote. And let's just put it out there as an alternative. I don't think that that's a, a, a winning strategy, and I don't think that's a strategic way to look at elections. Some people might look at it differently. I would argue there's very little evidence to suggest especially with regard to the Green Party, that simply running people as an opposition party will garner the kind of support in and of itself through those actions to build the party apparatus. My suggestion was that the Green Party start to get involved with more local events and regional activities. So when there is a campaign, be involved with that campaign, go out, build a base, hold regular meetings in neighborhoods and in communities have fundraisers, have cultural events, bring people into a space and show them what the Green Party is outside of an official meeting. You know, I haven't seen, uh, you know, if I don't receive, in other words, the Green Party starting from scratch here in, in Indiana. It's, it's, it's an entity that essentially doesn't exist. How many years does it, is it going to reasonably take to make the Green Party an electoral, a viable electoral alternative? in this two-party system. What does that look like? I'm not saying I have an answer to that question, but I'm saying that that is a question that needs to be answered. Are we talking about two years? Are we talking about five years? I would assume we're talking more about 10 or 15 years. And I think a lot of people get very discouraged when they are told that whatever project they're hoping to engage in is going to take 
uh, a decade to accomplish. And that's, that can be frustrating for some people, but I think we have to be upfront and we have to be very honest with people. I don't, I think one of the things we don't do well on the left sometimes is to be honest with each other. And I think a lot of this is with good intentions. You know, I think a lot of people on the left, they hear an idea or they hear someone propose something and they really do want to believe in it and they really do want to be a part of it and they really do want to see that thing or that project or that campaign be successful. And I think that that's useful at times, but it also can be a hindrance to what we're doing. So if you have individuals who come to the group and they say, hey, we want to build the Green Party and, and for sake of usually it's a it's a social thing. You know, usually it's I don't want to ruffle this guy's feathers or this woman's feathers because I know this person. I like this person. They have a good idea. But socially in this moment right now, I don't want to tell them that I disagree with them because that's going to lead to a much further and more complex conversation. Unfortunately, that's exactly what we should be doing with each other. And it's simply not happening. So one of the things I told my friend from the Green Party was I'm always going to respect you and I'm always going to listen to what you have to say because you are committed to this work. But I also have to be very honest with you in terms of what you are telling me. So if you are coming to me with a strategy or an action that doesn't make sense or doesn't fit into our strategic view of what we're trying to accomplish as an organization here in Northwest Indiana, here in Michigan City, uh, then I simply can. I think this can, again, any of these examples I think can be uh, transplanted to whatever context in which you find yourself. But if, those, if, if this person from the Green Party's plans and strategies and so forth don't fit with our existing idea of what the next two, four, six years looks like, then I think it's very important. In fact, I think it's essential for people to be totally upfront and honest and to say, look, I like what you're doing. I like your cause. I appreciate your work, but we don't think that that's a viable strategy moving forward. Hence, we cannot commit to helping you uh, implement a strategy that we think is, is going to be a failed strategy. That can be a very difficult thing to do with the people who are most close to you, let alone people uh, whom you very rarely speak to or people who are just simply acquaintances or people that you run into at public events every few weeks or every few months. Those are very, very difficult conversations to have with people. Okay, so all of that said, would we be willing to do things to help people in the Green Party? Of course, of course. The question is, for all organizations that are out there, what everything that you do, everything that we do, every decision we make, every event that we go to, every meeting that we have should be strategic in nature. It should never just be this one-off, hey, on Friday I feel like having a documentary film showing about what's happening with the oceans. Maybe that makes sense if indeed we're conducting an environmental campaign that has to do with, say, the Great Lakes. So even though the documentary isn't about the Great Lakes, maybe it makes sense to show a documentary about the kinds of environmental impacts that climate change and ecological devastation are having on water, bodies of water throughout the world. 
that would make sense because then we can tie we can invite people to that documentary film showing after that film's over you can have a discussion but then you'll have something for them to do after that you can tell them hey look Yes, this documentary isn't exactly what we're dealing with, but it highlights many of the issues that we're trying to address with our campaign on X, Y, or Z that has to do with the Great Lakes. Then that makes strategic sense because you're holding an event that can then lead to or hopefully encourage people to take the next step to get involved with something that has to do, or at least similarly, has to do, it's very similar to what it was that we just watched in that documentary film showing. This is no different even for a public workshop. You know, so if we're working on a campaign and someone wants to come in and give us a workshop on social media, that actually makes a lot of sense. We always could use better social media strategies, better social media techniques and tactics and so on. So during a campaign, it makes sense if someone comes in and says, hey, this person can provide a workshop on how to strategically conduct your social media operations during a campaign. Excellent. That makes perfect sense to have that person come in. Um, does it make sense to have that person come in and give that presentation if we're in the midst of internal strategy? No, it doesn't. You know, so let's say like our local organization is going to move into a period over the winter, over the next few months, where we're focusing primarily on internal things our vision for the organization. That vision should be based on our values as an organization. What our our collective values as the Michigan City Social Justice Group. Those values should then dictate what the vision is for that organization. And then what is the mission of that organization? What kind of services, what kind of uh, uh, events and projects and so forth, will, what will we be working on as a collective group? Those are questions that cut across any kind of geographical line or, you know, so in, in other words, if you're listening to this program and you're, you're sitting in Spain, the same is true as if you're listening to this program and you're sitting in the Philippines or in Detroit, Michigan. If you're starting an organization those are the very basic steps to follow. That doesn't mean when you say that to some people, again, some people interpret that as, oh, this person thinks they have all the solutions or what. No, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm also not saying I have an answer for exactly how your organization should look. What I'm saying is there are certain methods that you have to go through and there's a certain way of following those that would lead to your organization being better equipped to do the things that you want to do than if you weren't going to follow any of these methods or any of these principles and just go straight into it. Um, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment if you don't approach it the right way. And here, again, and I know there's plenty of people on the left who probably get sick of me doing this, but I think that the apt comparison or analogy is with sports and with working out. So you can get people to go to a gym every day, seven days a week. And if they're not working out properly, if they're not doing the actual exercises properly, and if they're not eating correctly, they're not going to get anywhere near the kind of results they would if they were. Okay, so put differently, someone can go to the gym every day and still not accomplish jack shit. That is the same with organizing. 
that doesn't mean so much like working out. That doesn't mean that there's one way to get results in the gym. You could be a power lifter. You could be an aerobics person. You could be a swimmer. You could be into jujitsu and grappling. You could be into more like yoga and stretching and flexibility and cardiovascular exercise. You could be into CrossFit. Each one of those training methods will lead to serious results. But each one of those training methods has a set of principles that you have to follow if you want to get the kind of results that you want to achieve or that you seek to achieve. The same is true with organizing. People can go day in and day out with poor organizing methods and they can come away from those experiences with the unfortunate and cynical conclusion that organizing simply doesn't accomplish anything. So I see this all of the time. I see people who don't really know what they're doing. They have good intentions. They have a good heart. They're decent folks who want to do positive things in the world, but they don't know how to do it. Instead of asking for help or instead of seeking out similar organizations and individuals who've tried to do the same thing, a lot of these people, and I think this is the sort of cult of the individual and the cult of individuality and the cult of egoism here in the United States where everyone just thinks, well, I've got my own method. I'll do it my own way. I don't need anyone's help. I'm just going to do it myself. I, I'm not going to go ask someone else. That's one of the biggest mistakes you can make as an organizer is to not ask for help and to not seek out those who've already done the things that you hope to accomplish. Does that mean that you're going to follow those people verbatim? No. What that means is you're going to take the best of the best and leave the worst of the worst. So you reach out, you're sitting at your home right now and you're thinking to yourself, I would like to start a political organization, a, po a progressive political organization where I live. Okay, the first step I would suggest is to reach out to other people and other political organizations, whether that be via email or a phone call, I would suggest both, and ask people who are living in comparable political, economic, socioeconomic situations. So for instance, if you live in a rural town in Southern Indiana, it doesn't make much sense, though you might still get something positive out of asking someone in Milwaukee how they're organizing. It makes more sense for you to reach out to say someone in rural Mississippi or rural Alabama or rural South Carolina or rural Virginia or rural Kentucky and ask them what it is they're doing, what's working, what's not working, what mistakes did they make along the way, what would they do differently if they had to do it again. Those are the kinds of things that I ask organizers I speak with all over the world. It is a basic set of questions. You know, Here's the issues we're facing, here's the issues you're facing, what are you doing that's working well, what are you seeing that's not working, what mistakes have you made? What would you have done differently? I have those questions for every single person I run into who's doing organizing work. And as long as they can be honest with themselves, and as long as they can drop some of that ego, and they can step back and say, you know, we fucked up here, but we did this really good. You know, we screwed this part up, but we did this really good. That takes a certain level of sophistication and maturity and discipline and commitment to be able to do that. But that's what we're trying to create 
You know, those are the kind of individuals we're trying to create. Uh, those are the kind of organizations that we're trying to create, organizations that are accountable, organizations that are effective, organizations that can win people the things we need to win in order to live a decent life on a living planet. So this brings us back to what I originally had mentioned, which is let's, let's tie together what we need to do with what we hope to achieve. So when people come to me and they say, hey, I want to make sure that Michigan City has better public parks for people to utilize. Well, you know what? I think with a committed group of five or six citizens and maybe a good lawyer who's willing to put in some pro bono work and maybe you don't even need that lawyer with an issue that small, you can probably put in a few hours a week with your group of five or six people and Maybe within a couple of months, you're going to maybe within a couple of years, you're going to get better public parks in, in Michigan City. No question about it. If you're saying there's a development project that could be built and we want to stop that development project. And just for just to back up a little bit, the previous example I used would be a, an example of advocacy. You know, you get this small group of committed citizens, maybe some of them professionals uh, who want to create better public parks in your city. It's true. You probably don't have to be that disciplined. You probably don't have to commit that much of your time to such an effort. You could give a few hours a week and that will be adequate to achieve the things that you want to achieve. Namely, in this case, getting better public parks. Let's say there's a development project and that would be an advocacy model. Let's say there's a development project and that development project people in the community, at least those who are committed and knowledgeable and already engaged, decide we want to stop this development project. And you decide that you're going to gather a, a group of progressive organizations or at least leaders from those organizations and maybe some of their members to show up to city council meetings to protest the event, to write letters to the editor, to get petitions signed perhaps do some canvassing to turn people out or to encourage them to pressure their public officials. And through this show of force, you were able to shift the political dynamic uh, to the point where a majority of council members were not willing to go forward with this development project. That would be a case of successful mobilization. But if what we're talking about is developing a progressive city and a city that again neighborhood by neighborhood ward by ward precinct by precinct is organized and empowered and empowerment here is the key word for me if people in that community feel empowered to make the decisions or to force those who are in power at least until we can create new decision-making mechanisms and political bodies of power to force them to do what we want on a regular basis, not just for one event. That is community organizing. That is day in, day out, week in, week out. There are regular meetings. Organizations have goals and visions and strategies to achieve those goals and to eventually achieve their vision. Those organizations are working in tandem with other progressive political organizations that exist in the city. And those organizations have created some kind of a federation or some kind of a body that can then reach out 
to other organizations throughout the region, throughout the state, throughout the country, and eventually throughout the world who are doing similar work and who hold similar values with a similar vision. That, to me, is what community organizing looks like in the 21st century. It looks like the regular ability of ordinary people to impose their will on the political system. That's sort of my short-term vision of what real community organizing looks like. That means having a say-so in all of the decisions that are being made that can impact your life. That means having a say-so in your city budget. That means having a say in whether or not different development is being created. That means having a say in what kind of political organizations or what kind of educational institutions are being conducted or composed in your cities. That means having a say in what kind of a health care people in your community are receiving. That means having a say in what kind of uh, activities, cultural activities, cultural institutions that you're going to create and use in your city. Um, those are the kind, that's the kind of sort of day-to-day organizing and the kind of community organizing that I think is essential if we're going to talk about community organizing in a serious way. And, and the, the, oper- the operating words there for me are primarily power and empowerment. So if people don't feel empowered, they're obviously not going to take steps to do the kinds of things that they need to do uh, to create the kind of power that they're going to need to create to win things. And so if you have, let's say, you know, here we have limited capacity. So for us, one of the primary challenges is always determining what can we do. So there's things that everyone wants to achieve, but then there's only so many things that you can achieve with the kind of capacity that we currently have. So one of the constant calculations that needs to be made for, I would assume, the vast majority of progressive political organizations in the country, and indeed probably around the world, depending on what, where you live and what context you live, is that decision. We've got 50 people in this organization. What can we achieve with these 50 people? Or what can we not achieve with these 50 people? Or what can we expect to achieve with these 50 people? Those are the kinds of things uh, that every group is going to have to decide. And those are the kind of decisions that that obviously should be determined collectively and they should be determined in, in terms of what your vision of your organization is and what your objectives are. So as I was explaining to a friend earlier today, once your organization is structured and once you have that structure in place, so you have, you have this vision as an organization, you have your mission statement, you have then moving forward to like, we're moving to the end of 2017. So now we're talking about what does 2018 and 2019 look like? What does the next five years look like? Well, if all of that strategic visioning is planned out, then it's really easy to determine whether or not someone's project or an upcoming campaign fits within that vision. So you have, uh, if, if that structure is in place properly, if someone comes to your group and they say, we want to work on making the waters clean in the Great Lakes, or we want to work on more fishing regulations in the Great Lakes because we're overfishing portions of the Great Lakes. Okay. In and of itself, that's a very useful thing to do. And if indeed you have a thousand members of your organization and say you have a subcommittee that works specifically on ecological issues and advocacy, 
maybe you can immediately plug those people into that apparatus and they can continue or uh, continue to do that work or they can begin to do that work. If you only have, say, 15 or 20 people in your organization and you're trying to develop, you're trying to figure out, all right, how do we build a base? How do we build grassroots social movement power outside of the electoral sphere while simultaneously trying to build some kind of an electoral strategy for putting people in power, say, at the local level or the state level, even the federal level? Perhaps in that situation, it doesn't make sense to take a large portion of your resources and time and plug them into an effort to stop overfishing because does that campaign allow you an opportunity to reach out to say people of color in your community? Does that campaign really hit at the core of what people are challenged with in our society and in our communities right now, you know, especially in communities that are uh, destroyed by deindustrialization, opiate epidemic, uh, suicide, violence, drug addiction, alcoholism, all the rest, you know, extreme poverty, racism, segregation, police violence. This is all stuff that plagues areas like the Great Lakes and, and the Rust Belt. And so in that case, it doesn't seem to make much sense to me if the vision of your organization is to build serious political power and say within two years to start running effective campaigns to then have uh the group focus their energy on a campaign to stop overfishing in the Great Lakes. It just doesn't make strategic sense. But if all of that stuff is properly planned out and if all of that stuff is transparent, <clears throat> you can avoid a lot of the interpersonal disputes within your organization because then the person who's coming and proposing this idea to the group, they can see that there's an actual process that they're go that we're going through. So it's not just Jane brings this proposal to the group, the group shoots it down without any sort of official structure for examining that proposal. And then Jane goes back home thinking, oh man, there's a few people in that group who really don't like me or, oh, they really don't, they're not, they're not really down with my ideas or they don't really pay attention to me is you can avoid a lot of that with structure. And that is why structure is so important. Um, and the, the more transparent that structure is, the more people are going to be willing to buy into it. And the more flexible that structure is, the more people are going to be willing to stick with it because they'll, know, they'll see that the structure itself, while it serves a vital purpose, is also flexible enough to be changed over time. And so when people are coming into these organizations, they don't feel like, ah, this old cadre of people who have been engaged and involved with each other for the last three, four, five, ten years have already decided how this organization is going to be run. And I'm just simply here as a part or a cog in that machine. That's not going to work over the long term. You might get people in the short term to buy into something like that and for short term aims. But to build a long term organization, and then this is a conversation I've had ongoing with my friend Samantha Castro in Australia, because I particularly am fond of the Friends of the Earth organization down there for several reasons. Number one, because it's an NGO that's existed for 40 years, which is very rare in and of itself outside of the major ones. And this was also a, you know, a split off organization. This was a group that came from the original Sierra Club. So not only have they existed for 40 years as an organization that split off from another major organization, but they've existed for 40 years in a very radical space. 
So they've been one of the few uh, environmental NGOs, or, or let me just broaden that. They're, they've been one of the few NGOs, period, in on the progressive left who've maintained their values and their vision and their mission long after becoming a multi-million dollar entity and an international entity. They've continued to conduct very radical actions, direct actions, going after the biggest industries in, in, the, in the world and in their country in Australia. And they've been doing that in an effective way because they have structures uh, that aid a sort of non-hierarchical uh, decision-making process, a democratic and transparent decision-making process, and making sure that those structures are constantly improved upon. So the more that they can get, they also use a consensus model for decision-making. And the benefit to that is that you allow everyone to be a part of the process, not just for the sake of being a part of the process, but because you want, pe you want to empower people with the sort of skills and knowledge that the most skilled and knowledgeable people currently exist or currently possess. So anytime you go into a group, you're gonna have certain individuals in that group who are more knowledgeable, who have more skills, who've been involved longer, who have more experience. The point isn't to just make everyone else feel like they're part of the process just to make them feel good. The point is to bring everyone else up to that level of understanding, of skill sharing, of knowledge and so forth. But as we mentioned before and earlier in the program, that also takes a certain level of commitment from both parties. You know, so if you're in an organization and your organization, as I mentioned before, is willing to just settle for like maybe passing a couple of ordinances, doing some reforms in your city government, helping out with some local needs, like maybe improving your parks and so forth, that takes a certain level of commitment and discipline but that commitment and discipline is going to increase with each level of action. So as you move from that advocacy model to the mobilization model, you're going to require a, a different level of commitment, a different level of knowledge, a different level of skills and understanding and experience than you would if you were simply advocating. And then all of that is ramped up much further if we're talking about community organizing. So at each level, Again, we should be asking the question, what do we hope to achieve? And are, the, is, is, are those aims uh, decided collectively and in a transparent and democratic manner? And once we've collectively and democratically and openly decided on what it is we want to achieve, what are the best, best methods for achieving those things that can not only simply achieve those ends, but in the interim, build up leaders, give people skills, create new networks and all of the rest. So part of I'll read part of what I have from the Friends of the Earth models that we've been working with here. And also, uh, as I mentioned to a friend earlier today, I wanted to give a, uh, a workshop on these because I think there's some of the of all the organizations that I've worked with. I think that they have some of the best things to say. And as I use the analogy with um with working out, I think the other analogy that would be good is, is you know, sort of simple ones like they use in terms of the anti-hierarchical group decision-making process. So they ask the question, why anti-hierarchy and consensus decision-making? Most organizations we live, work, and play with are hierarchical. A structure is in place 
where people who've made their way to the top have the last say on management decisions. I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening is quite familiar with that. That would be your workplace, that would be school, that would be most of the institutions that we engage with. But we also make decisions in a non-hierarchical ways all the time. Think about organizing a dinner with five friends. And here I think this is a good analogy, much like correct organizing methods versus incorrect organizing methods will get you the same result as if you go to a gym every day of the week, but you're not using the right methods. You're going to leave feeling very disappointed. But here, I think this is also good. So think about organizing a dinner with five friends. One friend can't handle spicy food. One can only eat gluten-free. One is a bit financially strapped, and two friends live on the other side of the city. Usually, what you'll do is have a quick discussion within the group about how you'll incorporate all of these needs. Some people will suggest the options that the group thinks through. The Indian place on Thompson Road, well, that won't work for Sally because it's too hot. The sushi restaurant on George Street, too far away for Max and Sam. How about the Mexican place in the city center? That way, everyone travels an equal distance, many dishes are mild, and there are even some gluten-free options for Paul. The point of this is that in any group that you're working with, you're going to have a multitude of personalities and individuals and opinions and values and worldviews converging in one space at one time. The point isn't going to be to make everyone to think the same. And this is one of the failures, I think, of 20th century left-wing ideology, particularly Marxist ideology. It's trying to find a model that can fit everything. Instead of finding principles and values that everyone can generally agree upon, And there might be minor differences in how people view those values, though through the process of workshops and education and conversation, the idea, say, within our group of 20 people, initially everyone comes into the room with a vastly different idea of what solidarity is. But maybe by the time we're done with our processes, maybe by the time we're done with these workshops, those 20 people have a much more cohesive vision and a cohesive understanding of what they think solidarity is. So I would argue this is the same point that they're making here with regard to non-hierarchical decision-making. You can get someone in the group to say, hey, fuck it, the five of us are going to go eat here, and that's just the bottom line, and maybe two or three of the people still show up, and maybe that works for one dinner date. But if indeed you want to keep those people coming back day after day, year after year, week after week, Everyone in that process is going to have to feel like their opinion is valued and, and, and they're going to have to feel as though they have an equal opportunity to make those decisions within the group. So the great things about anti-hierarchical decision making are anti-hierarchy is the best way of ensuring that people's voices are heard. When we reach consensus, we consent to the proposals of the group. Consensus decision making process allows space for proposals to be adapted to take on people's concerns or points of view. Anti-hierarchical or consensus decision-making processes harness collective imagination. A group of naval engineers were given the job of locating a grounded submarine with some incomplete information. All of the engineers gave it their best guess, but not one person got the correct location. But on average, the estimates came within six meters of the submarine. In other words, the example is a group of naval engineers are trying to find a vessel. Each one of them have an idea of where that vessel is located, 
not one of them actually understands where the vessel is located. But by using the collective intelligence of six or seven naval engineers, you can come within six meters of where that vessel is located. This, to me, is also a common phenomena that cognitive science is sort of beginning to understand. But that said, a collection of minds will see a problem in a much different light. And so, again, the point to consensus decision making isn't that every single person in the group is going to feel exactly the same about the decision that's being made. It's that every person in the group is going to feel as if their concerns were heard and that their proposals were heard and properly examined. That's much different than saying everyone is on the same page. Anti-hierarchy and consensus encourage an ethic of working towards creative solutions together. So some ways of attacking problems encourage conflict, competitiveness, and therefore our egos. And that's something that we're constantly trying to fight in any organizing context. And that is conflict, situations of conflict and disagreement, competitiveness, because we're not necessarily in a competitive environment, nor are we trying to uh, foster competitiveness. We're trying to foster cooperation. And once you can cut past those things, then hopefully we can address the issue of ego. Uh, we want less and less people to come into the space whatever organizing space you're operating in uh, with the sense that they need to be right or that they're going to look down, be looked down upon if indeed they have a different opinion than the rest of the group. And in the end, of course, anti-hierarchy simply makes people grow, especially living in a society that is uh, extremely hierarchical in virtually every aspect of our lives. That could be from media and cultural consumption to the military, to the police, to schooling, uh, to the jobs that we find ourselves in every day, all of those institutions are extremely hierarchical in nature. It can sometimes also be challenging to adopt or adapt to consensus decision-making when we are used to more hierarchical decision-making processes. This is very true. It might seem slow and cumbersome or idealistic, and at times it can be, but it certainly doesn't have to be. So, Effective consensus decision-making doesn't happen by itself. It comes from practice, good facilitation, and the development of group process and trust within the group. So let me say that again, because I think sometimes people just assume that the method will result in a positive, in a positive uh, conclusion. Effective consensus decision-making doesn't happen by itself. So it's not that in and of itself the model is inherently better than others. It's that it comes from practice, good facilitation, and the development of group process and trust within the group. So practice, that's a systematic effort. Can your organization consistently encourage people on a regular basis to practice these things in a systematic institutional manner with intent? Intentionally going to the people in the group and saying, hey, we're gonna have classes one day a week for the next four weeks about proper facilitation and practice of, of consensus decision-making. Good facilitation, that means that the people who are in those facilitation roles have to feel very confident about what they're doing, and they have to, again, that confidence comes from practice. And then the development of good group process and trust within the group. As I was talking with my friend earlier, that trust comes from two places primarily in my experience. That trust can come from, on the one end, something that 
is maybe a little less structured but can still be structured, which is informal meeting places, informal organizing opportunities. So how do you build trust? You get to know each other. You get to know each other's families. You hang out with each other. You have a beer with one another. You meet each other's spouses. You go out together. Uh, you go experience life things together. You spend time with each other. Like Those are the kinds of things at the most elementary level that political organizations have to do and not just simply show up to meetings or not just simply invite people uh, to another public event and hope that you're going to get to know them in the five minutes of conversation you're going to have after a public panel discussion. That's not going to work. You're going to need to spend a significant amount of time with people outside of the official organizing spaces in which you find yourselves. The second part that I think can seriously build trust is a proper structure and a transparent structure. So you can build trust by spending time with people in social situations, but within a group dynamic, a lot of that trust is going to be built by simply implementing structures that are collectively decided upon, but that are always transparent and are never changed without collective approval. So some unions, such as the Chicago Teachers Union, and has run into trouble because the leadership of that union has taken it upon themselves to routinely change the decision-making processes and or subvert the decision-making processes. And what that does is cause a huge amount of resentment and distrust among the ordinary rank-and-file members of that union. This, being a non-hierarchical organization and being less under that kind of a structure, we don't run the risk of leadership changing those things, but maybe an unappointed leadership or maybe an unofficial hierarchy within the group gets together and decides, hey, we're going to subvert this process and make this organization more along the lines of what we want to do. Or there was a decision made collectively and a few of us really don't like it. So we're going to throw the wrench to things and try our best uh, to hide uh, how these decisions are made in the future. That way there's not as much input. Therefore, there can't be the opportunity for the group to create something that's outside of what this other smaller group wants. So I think both of those things taken together can help create a lot of trust. The more transparent those decision-making processes are, the better. Uh, the more people uh, hang out with each other, the more they spend time with each other, the more inclined they're going to be to trust one another. And I do think, as I've talked about for a long time, with organizers that I've worked with over the years that informal uh, organiz organizing spaces are just as important as formal organizing spaces, especially when we're living in as uh, alienated society and culture as we live in today. People simply aren't spending time with each other. So if the only time you're seeing each other is in an official meeting space, that's not going to cut it. Like there has to be this very intentional social practice or practice of socializing with one another. Um, I could go through, we only have a few minutes left here today. So I just want to mention core to this anti-hierarchical decision-making process is a commitment to process itself. When someone, so how is this done with steps for consensus decision-making? Introduce the issue. So this is how a basic consensus decision-making model could work. Introduce an issue. What are the key questions? What is the problem we need to find a resolution to? Moving from the introduction of the issue to discussing the issue. Explore the issue. Gather ideas. Discuss people's concerns. Use a brainstorm to record ideas. Then 
make proposals. A proposal should bring together the best ideas and concerns explored in the discussion process. Then discuss the proposals and debate the proposals. Does this proposal work for the problem that we have in front of us? Are there any amendments to this proposal? In other words, is the proposal essentially good, but we just need to add a few things here or there to make the proposal really good? And always those amendments should be to improve the proposal. Then you test for consensus. If everyone agrees, great, we have consensus and we implement the decision. Test for consensus, state the proposal clearly, which I think is a very important part. Make sure every single person in the room understands what that proposal is, what it entails, what it doesn't entail before moving for the test of consensus. And then let's say there is a major ob objection or block. There are four different options that you can go from. One would be to stand aside. So this allows the group to go ahead, but the people who, are object, uh, who object to this uh, can stand aside and allow the group to move forward with the understanding that they're not involved in the decision-making process, but they're also not going to be held, li held liable for the consequences of the group making that decision. So that's one option. That's basically, I hear something in the group, I don't really like it, I don't want to be a part of it, but it's not enough to block the group from doing what they want to do. I'm just not going to be a part of it. Number two, return to discussion to develop new proposals. Is there something we missed? Are there lots of standicides? Are, are there a lot of people who are not willing to move forward but who aren't willing to block the group? Then maybe we go back, reintroduce the issue, and talk about different proposals or maybe amendments to those proposals that could have been missed through the first time of going through the process. A third option would be to leave the decision for another day or time, take a break to reflect, and come back because a lot of times people will go into meetings with existing problems or stressors. Those things will only be compounded by a very difficult meeting. The fourth option, of course, and this is the least desirable, would be to accept the block and do not go ahead. So in that case, and I think this has been overused in the consensus decision-making model, but in that case, it's a matter of you like this, this decision the group is making is so contrary to my worldview that I am willing to either leave the group totally or to block the group from doing what they're doing at all costs, even if that costs me friendships, relationships, and all the rest. This is something the group has collectively decided to do that is just 100% fundamentally opposed to your vision or values. That happens very rarely, though people cite that as a way to block the process, and that's why consensus, the consensus process actually has such a bad reputation. In any case, that's all we have for today. I'm Vince Manuelli. This is the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM, and you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. We don't know the contrast, voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast, organically.